You know, it was a tough election, and I think everybody's still trying to figure out what happened. Well, I don't know how to say it. Racism in America is still alive and well. Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about people of color changing the face of Washington. I'm Frank Ordonez, and I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress for McClatchy. Today on the show, we have Representative Annette Barragon of California. She joined us to talk about some of the expectations, not only of her community, but of her large family, some of who are undocumented and expect her to fix the system. I have found that when you're talking to your colleagues, your personal story is the most moving part of it, especially if you have a personal relationship with them. It has been moving for some, others don't say much, and so you just have to assume that you know what that means. She's not new to Washington, but the times have caught up to her with the issues regarding immigration, regarding DACA. When she's got a cousin who's a dreamer, who's undocumented, and calling her and saying, hey, Prima, how are you going to fix this? That's a tough burden, I think she had put it. I mean, that's, that's powerful ammunition to have on the Hill. She's walking evidence of the impact of these actions. Yeah, it's funny, when I was here the first time, I was just a kid, and I was so focused on my job that I literally spent so much time there. It's harder for me to have seen the big change um, here other, other than the new baseball team, which I'm a huge baseball you're, fan. You're a fan. You're oh, huge. I'm a fanatic. Where did you get that from? My father. My father Parkinson's, and he didn't move a lot, so we would sit at home and we would watch baseball games together. And so for me, watching baseball has a very different meaning than it does to most people. It's like spending time with my dad. You're one of 11? It was the last accident, yes. <laughs> my dad was 59 when I was born, so you know I was an accident. <laughs> Child of Mexican immigrants, right? Absolutely. Both of my parents came from Mexico. How does your background kind of set you up for politics? Well, You probably had to be pretty political at the dinner table. There is no doubt about that. You're constantly negotiating for something. And sometimes that means raising your voice because you want to be heard. And oftentimes I'll be sitting right next to somebody and they'll say, I'm right here. You can lower your voice, right? Sometimes in politics, it's the person who's vocal. It's the person who's going to stand up for people, especially in my district. You know, I represent Compton, where people are working two jobs. They're living below the poverty line. They're worried about their kids getting shot. And they often say, I elect you so that you could be my voice or that you could help amplify my voice, right? And so I think that was certainly some good training ground. But it also is developing relationships in Congress that is so important. It's one thing I learned when I was here before. Back in those days, I didn't really do a lot of bipartisan events because I was mostly focused on African-American groups and being the liaison between the White House and those groups and the president getting his legislation passed. So it was more focused on organizations than per se individual members of Congress um, like it is now. So as the president of the freshman class, I get to interact with not just the Democratic freshmen, but the Republican freshmen. And they're still at the point where they like us. They want to work together. (laughs) They want to do something. And I think that's great. I want to get back to your your childhood. Um, What did your parents do? Or what do they do? So my father was a TV repairman and passed when I was 23 years old. He had Parkinson's disease. And so uh, he never saw me graduate from high school. But uh, my mom... She did a a lot of odd jobs, everything from taking care of kids, cleaning homes. She worked in a factory. And, you know, when my father was was dying, uh, she effectively went home and became his caregiver. So she's somebody who I now take care of. And um, 
just neat to be able to at least have one of your parents kind of see what their sacrifice has resulted in. And she had a, a third grade education. So how did it go from her with her education base to instilling the desire for, for education and greater things for you? So we had a rough when I was a kid. I mean, we were on government assistance. I remember getting the block cheese, going to the nonprofits like the Salvation Army. And I will never forget she and my parents basically said, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer. That's the only way you're going to get out of this world. Now, I see blood and I want to pass out. <laughs> so I immediately said, law school it is. And uh, when I was applying to go to UCLA, people said, well, people who want to go to law school usually do political science. And it worked great for me because I love the history and the tie-in of, of politics. So she, she taught me well in that knowing that I had to get an education was going to be key. What does she think about how things are going now? I mean, my mom is, is just so proud. And every time I am in the paper, she'll run out and get 10 copies of it. And I say, Mom, that's okay. You know, I'll be another and other things. Um, but uh, she was in Washington for the first time when I got sworn in. And I thought that was really neat to have her come to the nation's capital and see the history here. And So she never visited uh, D.C. when you were in the White House? She did not. No, she did not come then. Was there a reason? No, my brother came, his family came out. That was a time where my father was very ill, and so she just didn't make it out. That was like literally a, a year before he died, so he was he was not well. Now, you mentioned that you're her caregiver. She, she's okay. Yeah, my mother is 76. You know, she's got diabetes. She's got all kinds of health issues. Luckily, now that I'm here most of the time, my sisters have really stepped up and helped out, and I'm super appreciative of that. Is she paying attention to what's going on politically, and does she talk to you about it? Uh, she does, um, especially on the immigration front. And, you know, she's on Social Security. She makes like $943 a month. And so when we have a debate about Social Security and Medicare, it's like, how come my eyeglasses don't get covered? How come dental isn't covered, right? It is the very things that seniors talk to you about, my mother talks about. Being one of 11 and being in politics, what did your other siblings do? So I had some interesting childhood experiences where I had a sister got pregnant at 15, one got pregnant at 16. So I kind of learned from them what not to do. I'm lucky that my sisters have gone on to get their GEDs, some gone to college. Two of my sisters are flight attendants. One of them is a public school teacher. One of them is a nurse who delivers babies uh, on a military base. My brother's an architect. So we've done okay. I was the first in my family to become a lawyer, certainly the first one to run for elected office. And um, it's funny because, you know, as a lawyer, people, like your entire family calls you and they think that you could solve all of their problems. <laughs> and now as a member of Congress, it's, it's only amplified a little more than that. You're getting called about potholes? Oh, yes. We certainly get calls about potholes. What was the biggest ask? Now that you're a member of Congress, is there anything wild that your parents or your family has asked you for? You know, a lot of it is concern over my own family that are dreamers, my own family that's undocumented. And it's like, what can you do to help them and protect them? And one of my cousins is a dreamer. And there's a constant concern, the call to me on what are you going to do to help save me? And what can I do or what should I do? And I think that is a huge burden that I feel not just personally, but in my district that is 70% Latino and you have quite a big uh, number of people who are going to be impacted and are being impacted by the current immigration policy that we're seeing happen 
with this administration. So what, what do you tell your cousin? Because you can't do the political speak to your cousin. They're going to ask for the truth. I mean, what, what do you tell them? The very similar things I tell my constituents. And I tell them, you have to keep hope alive. We have to keep being vocal, amplifying our voice, making sure that we're mobilizing other people. And I tell them, look, the good news right now, the positive right now, is that the sides are talking. And we do see a rare support amongst both sides of the aisle on an immigration issue. And that has been tough to see in a long time. And so I'm hopeful that we can get something done on this. Now, it, it may take more than we, we want. But I tell them, I say, look, you know that I'm fighting as hard as I can to get legislation passed. In the meantime, I said, you need to continue to make sure your application is up to date and renewed. You need to make sure that you stay out of trouble. You're totally clean. Make sure you continue to do all the things that you're doing. Pay your taxes, go to work. Have you told members of Congress about your personal story, about the fact you have family who are dreamers? And if you have told them, has it resonated with them? Uh, You know, we have meetings across the aisle on issues like immigration. They're not publicized where it's an opportunity for everybody to speak freely And we do hear support on the other side from people that you may not think you're going to hear support from who want to do something, who who they themselves have personal stories. But there is, you know, the concern of leadership going after you, the concern of the president going after you. I'm hopeful that if we put a bill to a vote, some of those people will come over and that it will pass. Can I ask you what you thought of the dreamer kids who confronted uh, Nancy Pelosi during that rally? report to us any deportations because they're telling us they're not happening. And, and, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nobody wants to leave anybody behind. There's nobody who's more personally impacted because I have family that are not just dreamers, but are part of that 11 million. And so I want to see comprehensive immigration reform. And we are going to push to fight for that. What I don't want to lose sight of is when you have an immigration issue where you have bipartisan support, I'm not willing to just say everything or nothing. And I think that is something that's hard. Even when I talk to my own family, it's hard to say that. But I think people should know that we really are not just fighting only for the dreamers. We are fighting to find common ground to get comprehensive immigration reform. A lot of the dreamers feel like these proposals are simply just going to use the kids as a bargaining chip. I mean, did you feel for Minority Leader Pelosi at that moment? For me, it was more of focusing on the issue and understanding their pain and listening to them, because I think that everybody should be listened to. And I can understand their pain. Look, when you're in fear, you want to go out and disrupt anything you can. What it's sometimes hard for people to see is they just want to see results and they want to see results for the the greatest number of possible people. I want the same thing. And so if we can use that energy to target the members who are on the brink, especially members who are in districts where Hillary won or on districts where it's a very slightly Republican district, there are so many of those members that need to hear from dreamers and to hear from those who support dreamers. That's where I want to focus my energy is on asking those kids to make sure that they are not just focusing on a few of us, um, especially those who are fighting for 
their rights and right now fighting to make sure they get those protections. People have watched Senator Schumer and Nancy Pelosi dealing with Trump, negotiating with Trump. It's caused some unease among some folks. What about your constituents? Do they look at that and are they a little nervous? Or Well, there's always people who are nervous when you're talking to the president because, frankly, we can't trust him. He has said things before and he hasn't acted. And this situation, I approach it with a lot of doubt until I see him actually sign legislation, providing protections, I'm going to continue to have that doubt. But it's a good step that they are talking and that we are getting at least rhetoric right now that they're willing to look at this. And I think that is a step in the right direction. Do you believe Pelosi's doing it the right way? I would have liked to have read that, uh, you know, after that discussion, that it, there would be a clean dream bill. But I wasn't in the room, and I don't know how the conversation happened. And you have to be at the table. You can provide your feedback to leadership. That's what we do. And, you know, what we've been told is the votes are not there yet. We're working on those votes. So how have things changed politically here since your days in the White House? I feel like they're more divisive now. I feel instead of having a president who is trying to unify people and be positive, You are constantly seeing him attack, whether it's immigrants, whether it's people of color. It reminds me of the struggle that we had, you know, way back in the civil rights era. And it feels a lot of that is um, is coming back again. And it's shocking to me. What exactly is that feeling? What's what's similar? Part of it is the attacks on communities of color you know, civil rights violations. You know, when I was at the NAACP, because I worked there in 1999, we were looking at the issue of racial health disparities. And back then it was racial profiling and getting pulled over. You know, now we're seeing people being killed. It's not just being pulled over. And so when you have been here and you were focused on those issues and you see what's happening now, it's only gotten worse and it only continues to get worse, frankly, because of who occupies the White House is making it more divisive. When you were at the Clinton White House, you were one of a few Latinos. What was that like? I mean, one of our first interviews was with Cecilia Munoz, and she had recalled the time when uh, she was speaking with members of Congress, and they had said to her, like, you know, they had spoke about her level of English. There was a, a bit of surprise about how much English she spoke, and it really took her back. We were working on an immigration bill that was going through the Congress, and it had a point system, and the idea was, we want people to be able to adapt so you have more access to come as an immigrant if you're an English speaker. And this is something that we objected to, and this senator made the point of, well, but look at you, you speak fabulous English, like you wouldn't necessarily expect it. I was curious, did you have any type of encounters like that? I did not, and maybe it was because I was an African-American outreach. Uh, Most of the members that I interacted with were my civil rights heroes. It was like John Lewis and MLK Jr. the third, and I didn't have that experience. Although I will tell you, um, I don't generally talk about this very often. I did have an unfortunate experience. After I left the White House, I had an opportunity to come back to DC in 1999, and I was trying to decide where to go to work. And I went back to my old boss, um, Ben Johnson, and I said, you know, Mr. Johnson, I'm coming back to DC. Can I come back to the White House? What do you think I should do? And he said, Nanette, I think you should go work on the Hill. I think you should see the legislative side of how things work. Um, Why don't you think about doing that? So I called Hillary Shelton, who's still at the NAACP, about working there. But what was really surprising and 
real sad is when I went back to visit the White House, somebody, uh, a Latina, said, what are you doing? Why aren't you working for NCLR or an organization of ours? And it was at that moment I think I first saw the continuing division, even at the highest level sometimes. And my response was, the NAACP does work across communities of color. And if we work together and we unite together, we will get so much more done. And we need to stop thinking of us or them. It's all of us, right? And that was the great thing about the Clinton administration and Ben Johnson. They worked on the initiative for One America. And so I, I did hear a little bit of that, even at the highest levels. You talk about that. I mean, that's been something that's going on for a while. You know, the projections that uh, Hispanics will become will overtake African-Americans population-wise. And there's always been this sort of concern about, particularly in the, in the realm of employment, this perception that this person is going to take my job or that person is going to take my job. Do you think it's more pronounced now than it was back when you were in the White House in the 90s? Well, I think the president is trying to cause that division and that wedge. Luckily, in my district, I have not heard that. As a matter of fact, we have had everybody standing up for immigrants, and it's been really great to see because this is not just a Latino issue. The economy overall does better when we all do better. And so I I don't buy into that argument at all. So working as a liaison and outreach for the African-American community as a Latino, what did you learn that you didn't know, and what did you learn that you'd like other people to know? Well, I learned perseverance. The voter engagement that you see within the African-American community, it's like, how do you get that within the Latino community? Because it's still not happening. You have Latinos who don't vote in primaries. I know firsthand when I knocked on doors in Southgate, which is majority Latino, people said, I'll see you at the polls in November and me having to educate them. And so it has been a lot of the discrimination issues and identifying with that and how do you carry that over, that fight you know, the civil rights issues when it comes to voting records and voter protection issues that are still happening that are now spilling over into the Latino community. And knowing that you have precedents, you have history where through nonviolent protest, we were able to make a difference. We have certainly a lot to learn from that, uh, not just within my own community, I think right now in America with what is happening. If you kind of step back from the time that you were in the Clinton White House to the time now, I mean, how would you say that's kind of changed and also kind of like the the evolution of influence that Latinos, African-Americans, people of color, have you seen a change and how has that changed? Because for a long time, people were talking about there's been a lot of progress. We have certainly seen the population amongst Latinos growing, right? For example, Latinos are the new majority, especially where I'm at. And if you take a look at communities like Compton and Watts, people still think they're a majority African-American. That's actually not the case anymore. We've seen, I think, the purchasing power that Latinos have in the economy, which I think will translate into voting and in politics. We have the most number of Latinos in Congress now than we've ever had before. But For me, it's making sure that we continue to work together because if we do, we wield a lot of power. Last week, CBC week, I came in for that because I think it's so important that we are working across color lines, across party lines. I think that's just going to be so important, uh, not just for me, but for our country. What does the election of Donald Trump say about the influence that Latinos have politically? Well, I... 
you know, you hear rumors back and forth about, you know, what the turnout was like and who elected him. I could tell you Latinos in California did not elect this president. <laughs> he is mobilizing Latinos in a, in a positive way, unfortunately, using terrible methods to do that. For me to be able to come as the only Latina that was elected to Congress in the House in the entire country in 2016, where there wasn't already incumbent there, is huge. One, it tells you we have a lot more work to do. But to be able to be the face right now of the very community he's attacking is very personal. It means a lot to me to be able to do that. I mean, just to push back a little bit, I mean, since, you know, 2012, particularly when Obama won such a large percentage of the Latino vote, the Republicans were talking about, hey, we need to change. You know, Democrats and Latino groups spoke, you know, you got to listen, you got to listen. We're going to vote. What happened? Frankly, when you take a look at some of the states that turn this election, then don't tend to be the ones that are the most heavily, heavily populated by Latinos. I mean, maybe Florida is the first state that comes to mind where you see the largest concentration. I think amongst Latinos, though, you, I have seen a constant concern, and I don't think as many Latinos voted for him as people initially said. And we're continuing to be a rising voice and a voting block in this country. Um, but we, we need more than just Latinos. I mean, that is the, the reality. Can I ask you what you thought about John Kelly, who was obviously the head of Department of Homeland Security? Trump gave him credit for, you know, cracking down on illegal immigration. Now he's chief of staff. What did you think of him being picked to be uh, his kind of right-hand guy right next to the Oval Office? So somebody who sits on the Homeland Security Committee, I was a little shocked to see it happen. But I could see that he would want somebody that had some could put some order, and a general generally does that. I was not a big fan, mostly because you know he came to my committee, and frankly, I believe he lied in my face when I asked him about the travel ban and the chaos at the airports. And he looked at me and he said, "There was no chaos at the airports," and I I knew there was chaos. I was there, and so it felt like he was taking orders and carrying them out instead of being the voice of reason and trying to talk to the president. It was disheartening for him to tell us he was not going to take a position on legislation. And then a couple months later, we see him on the Hill. And I said, Mr. Secretary, you said you weren't going to take a position on these. You say you're for DACA. Well, why don't you stand with us on that legislation? And then he had the nerve to tell me he wasn't aware that there was any DACA legislation. So I, I was a little disheartened by um, some of the interactions, and but I could see why the president picked him. I mean, he's a general. He's got a, a stellar reputation, and my hope is that he can help keep us out of a nuclear war, and if he does that, uh, there will be some progress, maybe. You think he could be a positive in the White House? He could certainly be a positive if he wanted to be a positive. Because if he really believed in DACA, he could use his influence to convince this president to continue those protections and to work hard to get something passed. Do you believe him that when he says that he's personally for DACA? He has said that to the caucus, that he believes that the Dreamers are the best kids and you know, he's supportive of them. And, you know, I have to believe him when he says that because I had, didn't, haven't seen any action where he was uh, doing something to the contrary. And part of me wants to believe him because I need something positive to really continue on. So I think there could be some positive, um, especially when it comes to war, when it comes to some of the, the rhetoric we're hearing happen 
never seen anything like this happen before. So if if he could help get some control in the White House of the president, I think that would be a positive. Do you think Trump is a historic president? I think he sets a lot of historic precedent in a negative way, unfortunately. There is no doubt we're living through history right now. I think you've seen the most divisive president you've ever seen. I think you're seeing a president who is governing and saying, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. Somebody stop me. Somebody who doesn't respect the separation of powers and the branches of government. And I think that is a very historic, unfortunately, a negative historic time. I think his conduct in the White House has put a stain on the presidency. So there is no doubt he's having a negative impact, in my, in my opinion. You know, in today's political climate, you know, what's more difficult to navigate, being of Mexican-American heritage or uh, being a woman? Probably right now, I would say Mexican heritage. But the both of them are such, they're so challenging. Being one of nine Latinas in Congress, whether you're raising money, whether you're advocating, people sometimes discount you. Oh, but recently I got to throw out the first pitch at the Dodger game. Who are you doing it in honor of? I'm doing it to honor my dad. But I don't want to talk about him because I'm going to start to tear no, no, up. <laughs> and I had Ron Say come up to me. Well, I, w- I was at the line. He was chatting with me. I said, Ron, do you have any advice for me? And he said, if I were you, I would do it from the bottom of the mound. And I said, no, I want to do it at the top of the mound. And he said, well, you have limitations. And I wonder how many men he told that to. As one of two women who play on the congressional baseball team, you used to have people who also wonder, what are you doing? So it's nice when I got to play and I got a, an RBI for people to say like, oh, wow, she really can play. So you, you, it still happens in Congress. Thanks again to Representative Nanette Barragon for being here. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and hear more stories at mcclatchydc.com slash mm. The show is produced and edited by Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn, and thanks to executive producer Ayanna Morali. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority.